Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Before I get to today's guest, a quick reminder, we've launched a YouTube channel as a companion to this podcast and for my other work in the philosophy of food. As listeners to this show know, I often ask students in my philosophy of food class to make video presentations of food that has a personal meaning for them, just like I asked the guests of this show. So to start the YouTube channel off, I'm putting up the video presentations of some of my students who agreed to share their presentations with you. There are a few videos up now, with more coming soon. The most recent video I uploaded is a student's presentation of his grandmother's arroz con leche, which is Mexican rice pudding. The recipe is delicious, and what he says about eating with his grandmother late at night and hearing her stories was really poignant, especially since she wasn't able to help him with the video as she was sick recovering from COVID. Check it out. Also, if you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod, and if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Today, I'm talking with Amy Hay about her new book, The Defoliation of America, Agent Orange Chemicals, Citizens, and Protests. It looks at the use of Agent Orange and other phenoxy herbicides, both in the obvious case of Vietnam, as well as domestically in the U.S. for agriculture and other uses, something many fewer of us know about, or at least something I didn't know about until I read her book. One thing I loved about the book is that it doesn't just talk about the damage these herbicides did or the ways companies and governments used them and suppressed objections to them. Instead, it focuses on people and groups' resistance to these institutions and the ways they fought back, from popular epidemiology to political resistance. I think this book and our conversation about it will be really interesting to anyone who works on environmental justice or food justice, whether as an academic or an activist. But let me read Amy's biography, which, as you'll hear, has a lot of odd synchronies with mine. Amy M. Hay, Ph.D., is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. Hey, that's where I teach. She grew up in Plattsmouth, Nebraska, which I'll say is about an hour away from where my in-laws grew up. Pioneers moving westward used to say the Platte River was too thick to drink and too thin to plow, as in too wide, too shallow, and too muddy. They were right. Her Ph.D. is from Michigan State University. Hey, so's mine where she wrote her dissertation on women's health and environmental activism at the Love Canal chemical disaster in Niagara Falls, New York, during the late 1970s. Her research interests focus on 20th century United States, women and gender history, and the histories of American medicine, public health, and the environment. She held research fellowships at the Chemical Heritage Foundation, now the Science History Institute in Philadelphia, and as a Carson Fellow at the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society in Munich, Germany. Her book, The Defoliation of America, which is what we're talking about today, examines protests over the use of the phenoxy herbicides by different groups of citizens, scientists, religious groups, Vietnam veterans, and environmental and health activists in post-1945 America. Her current research projects look at medical migration, health, and the environment over the long 20th century in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas. And now, here's my conversation with Amy Hay. So in and amongst all of, I don't know, has anything been going on the last couple of years? I feel like maybe there's been something happening that was really stressful for everyone. But in and amongst that, uh, you've managed to get uh, this book written. So before I ask you about it itself, maybe can you talk about the process of like, when did you come up with this idea for the book? How did you move forward with it? All those sorts of things. Right. 
Well, this book uh, took a long time to write, unfortunately, uh, but I, and that's part of the reason I'm so happy for it to be done and out in the world now. So sure. uh, I wrote my dissertation about Love Canal, right, which is about a toxic chemical dump in Niagara Falls that uh, leads to uh, women's health activism, basically. But it's not a uh, necessarily a triumphant story because the uh, women who organize at Love Canal are prepared to use uh, the argument that uh, they are uh, mothers, right? That they have families and the state mm -hmm. has an obligation to relocate them. Um, and the only problem with that argument is it leaves behind uh, a group of elderly people who lived in the area as well, mm. African-American families and mothers don't receive the same kind of treatment. And so, you know, it's a, uh, a powerful, but a problematic argument, right? So it's citizenship based on heterosexuality. And in yeah. the course of re researching that story, there was a uh, piece that appeared in the Vietnam veterans, local veterans paper that compared the conditions at Love Canal to those the veterans had seen in, in Vietnam, right? Like the uh, contaminated dying landscape. And so I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So that became the next project. And mm -hmm. uh, then I discovered they had, there had been a um, major work done about, there's a lawsuit that the veterans bring in 1984, uh, suing the chemical companies about their exposure to the Agent Orange because they're arguing that there was a, a deadly contaminant um, and it was irresponsible. Uh, they do get a settlement. It's uh, very interesting. It's not anywhere sufficient for uh, the illnesses they're going, going to see or experience. But um, I realized that once again, it was the the lawsuit's important. It's you know it was well documented, well received book. But I was interested in the protest surrounding it, and then it expanded from there. So I initially thought it was just going to be about veterans. And the more I did research, the more I realized that there were uh, different groups of citizens protesting the use of these uh, chemicals, um, both uh, in Vietnam, but um, also domestically, right? Like the Vietnam War actually um, heightens or uh, intensifies the protest, right? Makes it visible. But some of the uh, domestic protests had been from the uh, first use of the herbicides in the 1950s uh, through uh, actually even today, right? As uh, science has kind of caught up with our ability to understand how they may be harmful um, because they are uh, endocrine, I never say this word correctly, which is awful, endocrine <laughs> uh, disruptors, right? So yeah. uh, they're the atypical. It's not a massive exposure to these chemicals, but rather it can be small amounts, but it's uh, key when you, you receive the exposure. So I started to research it uh, after my dissertation was done. Uh, and I had uh, a setback in the sense that uh, publishing kind of crashed in 2008. And there mm. were a lot of Love Canal books on the market. So usually that's not a problem, the more the merrier. But uh, sure. you know, a lot of presses were like, oh, we've got one or there's one coming out. Uh, and so I started 2006, 2007. So it's been a long process. And I uh, regret that. But I think... Uh, it's okay. I can live with it because it's done now. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It, it, any amount of things like that in retrospect is totally fine. It's only as you're living through uh, finishing it that I imagine is yeah. the stress. Yes, that's exactly it. So how, how long ago did you finish the draft that's now in a book? Like how long did that part of the process take? Uh, they had warned me that uh, it's a full year process after you finish the final draft, the draft I submitted to the press was done by the summer of 2019. 
And then we kind of went through that process where it goes out for external review. So by the fall of 2020, it was all at the press. Um, and then it's like, it really was a year process for it to be out and print then. There's been paper shortages, so things have been even more disrupted. Like that's the, 2020 to 2022 has been kind of a rough period for everybody yeah. in terms of yeah. those Absolutely. disruptions. Yeah, yeah. yeah but it, it is a little disheartening. You know, the book proposal that I have out right now um, to various publishers is talking about emerging technology uh, and, you know, like something that's just on the cusp. Like we haven't quite, it hasn't quite become common, but I think it will be. And I want to look at it now. Now is a good time to think about it for engineers and designers before it's ubiquitous and it's kind of settled into a particular way of interacting with it. But those kinds of lead times make me worry <laughs> that the book will already yeah. be outmoded as it comes out, which is a bit depressing. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. It's, it's a whole, uh, it's, I don't think something you discuss in grad school at all, like, and journals are definitely faster. So it's like, it's a whole nother world to like navigate what, what all is going to be entailed for a book. <laughs> yeah. So um, maybe for listeners, we could start by, uh, you could just, explain what Agent Orange or Phenoxy herbicides in general are and uh, sort of the history of their development and use at, at first, you know, before people started, right. you know, having problems with it and protesting them. So some people trace this back to Darwin even with the idea that plants follow sunlight. But basically in the, at the turn of the century, um, up to the 1920s, they start to investigate what are basic, basically plant growth hormones. And at first, they're, you know, the scientists, and this is a, a dual project, right? So there are scientists in the U.S. Um, researching this and also scientists in Great Britain and England. And there's a lot of excitement because they're like, oh, this will be great. We can uh, produce more fruit, right? So that's seen as this idea of like accelerating growth um, and making plants be basically more more bountiful. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's kind of a apocalyptic twist when they realize, oh, well, it, we can actually grow the plants to death. And what they realize is, especially the phenoxy herbicides are going to be selective. So they uh, don't destroy cereal crops, for instance, but they do destroy many of the common weeds that plague those crops. And so this, you know, what had initially been conceived of um, chemicals that would like increase the yield of agricultural uh, fields are now going to increase the yield, but through a completely different mechanism, right? Like they're not going to make the plants more bountiful. They're actually going to kill the weeds to allow the plants um, to thrive. And the fact that, you know, they're considered to be selective uh, herbicides um, is seen as an incredible advantage. Um, and the irony is there's like kind of a war between the two countries about who is the first to publish or, you know, where is the, the, um, who's the first, right? Which is often a common mm -hmm. uh, dilemma within scientific circles. Sure. Um, and then with the advent of World War II, uh, it's perceived that these could be used as weapons of war, right? Because uh, there's, at least within the United States, and this is under uh, Van Ever uh, Bush um, of the Bush family, uh, there's like experiments being conducted to see if it could be used to destroy rice crops in Japan. The war ends before they used it, but already the chemicals have been associated with uh, the idea of like using them as weapons of war against crops. So in the post-war period, immediate post-war period, there's uh, multiple companies that are producing the chemicals. Uh, uh, Weed on is a really common uh, product and they're seen as like a huge boon, um, not only to like 
agriculture itself, right, which is experiencing labor shortages. So this is uh, perceived as like a, a great way to get around the dilemma of um, uh, not enough hands in the fields, but also by mm. gardeners. So it's like even used in like small time agriculture. Uh, and then also um, in urban areas as a way to remove noxious weeds, uh, like wag, ragweed that are uh, responsible for uh, asthma. And so there's like massive campaigns, at least in urban centers, to use the phenoxy herbicides to wipe out uh, weedy lots, um, not recognizing that taking out one uh, plant leaves them open to other noxious weeds that are resistant to the herbicides, right? So there's, uh, I mean, this predates uh, Carson, it predates, uh, or Leopold is just now publishing. So there's not a real... Uh, strong sense necessarily of the ecosystem or the idea that, you know, uh, wiping out the competition leaves it open to other, um, other competitors basically. And so, uh, you know, it's like a enormous investment, but by the end of the 1950s, the farmers are at least starting to complain because they have started to experience drift. And so crops that are vulnerable to the herbicides are being affected, right? Because uh, that's also an imperfect science on how to spray a field um, you know, it's, it's uh, what Peter Taylor would call unruly complexity from the very beginning, right? Like it's, there's scientific conditions and then there are the field conditions and the field conditions sure. are much more difficult to control. <laughs> but um, so there's, there is the beginnings of like criticism uh, by the late 1950s. Yeah. So you mean like um, people are spraying it on, you know, field A and then it's drifting over either to another field B yeah. that they own or even worse that their, that their neighbor owns. And exactly. killing the plants there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, farmers are pretty, I mean, that's, that's just like uh, any kind of property dispute, extraordinarily contentious. Sure. Uh, and yeah, so, of course. Uh, yeah, and it's not, uh, it's interesting because they're not used to the same extent that DDT is used, right? Like uh, there are massive DDT campaigns uh, throughout the country to eradicate um, pests in the South. Um, but also uh, the different kinds of uh, pests, like the gypsy moth that uh, urban centers were experiencing, right? Like there's a whole um, different sets of species of trees that die in the post-war period, post-war period because of um, attacks by uh, different uh, predators, right? Insect predators. And so we have uh, massive government uh, spraying campaigns of DDT and the herb- the phenoxy herbicides experience that, but it's mostly in the West and it's going to be more um, campaigns, not necessarily uh, of the nature or the scale of the DDT sprains that we see uh, that are uh, more extensive um, and uh, more visibly problematic, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's easier to point to DDT and realize that there are, there's toxicity here and it may be affecting human beings. Yeah. Almost from the beginning, the uh, phenoxy herbicides are, uh, you know, claim to be safe by the chemical companies producing them. And so then how does, so it, with starting in this agricultural use, but already with that idea from World War II of maybe using it as, uh, as a weapon of war, then it was used uh, during the Vietnam War, right? Right. So Robert, Robert McManera is like a, a little bit the architect of this, but also uh, Kennedy advisor, Walt Rostow. So the idea is, uh, they are going to um, force the peasants into what they call strategic hamlets. And it's uh, the idea that they're going to modernize 
uh, the Vietnamese agriculture production, right? So initially there are uh, efforts made by um, Nhao Dem, right? Who's the uh, leader in uh, South Vietnam. And then eventually the U.S. is going to step in. But um, the idea is the herbicides are being used for two distinct but related purposes. One is to remove the jungle cover, right? They had tried burning mm-hmm. initially, uh, and that didn't work because it was just so humid and so uh, water uh, pre- laden or present um, that they realized that they the they had to spray the herbicides initially to dry out the you know to um, start to kill the canopy because it's a triple canopy, uh, and then they potentially can use um, fire as well. So there's this uh, military uh, strategic. Um, use where they're going to identify enemy supply lines, identify boundaries. Uh, It's not completely successful because uh, the uh, North Vietnamese uh, soldiers um, who are called the Viet Cong are like very adept at like using even defoliated cover. Um, There's a whole series of tunnels that get built. Um, And then the second use um, during wartime is the idea that they're going to use, and this is more than just the two phenoxy herbicides that are in Agent Orange, but rather, I mean, there's a whole host of what they call the rainbow herbicides, and they gain this name because of the stripe on the barrel. But so there's going to be, the second use is going to be crop destruction on the assumption that if we destroy uh, crops, it will deprive uh, the Viet Cong of food um, and also be a weapon of attack. The only problem is um, those soldiers get fed. It becomes the South Vietnamese peasantry that are going to go hungry. Um, And so Agent Orange is used for that a little bit, but the um, Agent Orange herbicide, especially 2,4-D, right, which is one of the phenoxy herbicides, is going to be used extensively uh, along with um, Agent White, which has no 2,4-D in it. So there's there's, uh, some use of Agent Orange in the Agent Orange herbicides um, for the crop dissection, but they're going to expand their arsenal of uh, chemicals that they're using. And that's going to be one of the first points of criticism, international criticism, is you're destroying food in a part of the world that routinely experiences famine. And so, you know, that's um, uh, tagged almost immediately as potentially a war crime. And so initially, it's going to be the South Vietnamese that are going to be doing this. And then uh, this is one of the ways that we escalate our presence uh, in South Vietnam. We're producing the um, chemicals, and then eventually we're going to also send pilots and planes, and it's going to become uh, what is known as Operation Ranch Hand. Uh, and they actually, uh, and it's both ironic and a little bit uh, sick, uh, adopt uh, Smokey the Bear as their mascot. And it's like, only we can prevent forest, right? Instead of the uh, classic line, which is only... Only you can prevent forest fires. Jeez. And so the whole, you know, we have these pilots who are uh, kind of like the pinnacle of like macho who uh, are already responding to uh, concerns about the chemicals being sprayed. And they're like drinking the herbicide, you know, like the herbicide. And they are conducting these spraying missions throughout um, South Vietnam. And those are the classic photos that most people see, right, of a plane uh, with the plume of chemicals. Um, over a lush jungle forest or like yeah. uh, very common photos you'll see uh, used to like show or uh, illustrate Operation Ranch Hand. I feel like if people have heard of this at all, then they've heard about it 
in that context and sort of the Vietnamese context as Agent Orange, Um, but less so the uses before that you were talking about and then also those uses later, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, But just quickly before we talk about those, why do you think that is? Why do you think that it's, was it because of this international accusation of a war crime? Um, Because, you know, as you mentioned, it was less used than DDT, but it's also much less well known nowadays. I feel like DDT is still in the popular imaginary as a bad thing that we sprayed on people, whereas phenoxyherbicides basically isn't except in this one context. Right. It's interesting. So some of the activists I look at actually point to like some, there are three women in the West I look at as like case studies, right? The first one actually kind of predates some of the, or is concurrent with some of the use in Vietnam. Uh, And then the uh, later two are both um, going to point to what happens in Vietnam and say, look what happened there. We've banned it, right? So in 1970, Nixon is pressured uh, by, in part, uh, international criticism, but also uh, pretty strong uh, domestic criticism among scientists. Uh, And there's a great book by David Zorler that looks at that. It's called The uh, Invention of Ecocide. So in 1970, the Nixon administration bans the use of the chemicals, but we're still gung-ho and they're being used widely, um, uh, especially in the West, and there, these uh, two women activists um, of the three are going to be quite critical of that, right? Like, look, we've banned these chemicals in Vietnam and we're still using them here. How does that make any sense? And there's going to start to become, especially by the late 70s and into the 80s, growing evidence of the actual uh, human harm that the chemicals pose. I think with respect to how, how that plays out in Vietnam, for one thing, there's visible um, effects of defoliation, right? Like, so if you see those images of like the defoliated landscape, it's pretty haunting. It looks very much like some of the um, images you see from World War II of the devastation caused in places like France. So I think that hurts. I think the fact that the veterans are going to be one of those groups protesting after war also kind of elevates it, right? Um, and I also think that there's going to be a series, you know, the um, uh, Bertrand. Russell and uh, I'm not going to remember uh, have like uh, Sart are both going to mm-hmm. join together and they're going to have one of the first uh, tribunals uh, that we see in international circles and they're going to like hold these uh, war crime tribunals about Vietnam uh, in uh, Scandinavia right so in um, uh, Denmark and start to present evidence. Uh, and so it's an international panel and they're trying to decide, are there war crimes being committed in South Vietnam? Um, and this is where there's a whole host of, um, there's actually a session on uh, uh, chemical warfare it, that includes the herbicides. And this is where some of those uh, criticisms of the fact that we're creating famine in a part, you know, we're destroying crops in a part of the world that experiences famine. Um, we see uh some different panels, right? So the Japanese send a team and they've been doing experiments and they can show how, uh, how severely agricultural crops can be uh, affected by the use of the herbicides. There's going to be uh, concerns about uh, bioaccumulation. There are, uh, you know, there's uh, increasing uh, suspicion that there are human, human effects, right? That, cause this is one of the tricky things uh, they are, there's not necessarily signature diseases appearing from exposure. Um, And we're also going to start to see a sense that there, that this, you know, there's something not, 
right about these narratives of safety that the chemical companies and the U.S. Uh, military um, have been telling about the chemicals. Uh, and I want to uh, should note that the U.S. Uh, scientists have been making this criticism and a lot of the, the work and outcry that they have made becomes the um, basis for these international criticisms. And um, the tribunal is going to judge that there are war crimes happening in Vietnam. They're also going to have a panel on napalm, right? So there are other chemicals besides just the herbicides. And then right, right. Uh, people, if you've watched um, the documentary on Robert McManera, he actually mentions Agent Orange is one of the, is it the 10 mistakes, the fog of war by Errol? Yeah. I was going yeah. to ask if you were referring to the fog of war. It's yeah. a good movie. Yeah. I would, I'll put it in the yeah. show notes for people. And so, you know, McNamara himself actually identifies Agent Orange as, as one of the key, it, you know, it's a key part of that documentary. So I think um, it also, it's interesting because at the time, and I think also afterwards, it kind of gets uh, conflated or under the auspices of what's going on with napalm. So I think it's you know seen as a part of a a, a cluster of chemicals that we use unjustly in in South Vietnam. And I think that is you know like when you start to see all the Vietnam movies, there's that classic scene in uh, oh, uh, Apocalypse Now with you know it's napalm, but it's still like like this massive spraying campaign to destroy the jungle. And so I think that at least in part plays. Plays upon it. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I think just as it um, highlighted what the problems with these chemicals uh, in the U.S. at the time, I think it's also remained, uh, you know, um, in our consciousness. And I also think our understanding of ecosystems changes. I mean, there's a certain irony that 1962 is when the official Operation Ranch Hand starts, um, as also the publication year of um, Silent Spring. And so, you know, Carson's going to be a key figure in our uh, transformed understandings about the ecosystem and how interdependent uh, natural systems are, right? So, I mean, you know, the whole idea that, oh, these chemicals are safe, they're not going to hurt human beings, they only kill plants, mm -hmm. becomes a really uh, powerful point that, that, like, U.S. scientists, like, actually coin a term called ecocide, right? And they're saying, look, uh, you can destroy the natural environment, but that's not good, right? Like, that's going to be bad for all of us. And so I think <laughs> right, that's yeah, even also, if it didn't, even if you were right that it didn't have any kind of effects on the human body, it's still not right. great, right? And so I think that's a really uh, part of what happens, right? Like it gets, uh, we have this awareness now. I mean, and they're going to have it. You know, Carson is like starting is a part of that revolution, that transformation. So like, it's kind of like. Um, wrong chemicals used at the wrong time that then are going to become a part, you know, we're going to be aware of the ways that uh, maybe we should not have been destroying the natural environment of this country. That's like the size of Massachusetts. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's all quite depressing, <laughs> but important. Um, but your book focuses um, like you were hinting at earlier on dissent and opposition right. uh, rather than just sort of a catalog of, all the harms and um, bad effects, uh, which I think is really interesting, especially for a lot of my listeners who themselves are engaged in food activism or environmental justice activism in their communities. So uh, can we maybe like do sort of an overview of what those three cases that you focus on in the rest of the book are? Oh, absolutely. Well, it is, it is because it is a very depressing story. There's a great um, book 
War and Nature written by uh, Ed Russell. And he brings it up right to Vietnam, right? And it's, the book really focuses on the relationship uh, chemical companies have in producing these chemicals that are problematic. Mm. And I've talked to him and I said, uh, why didn't you continue it? And he's like, Vietnam was too depressing. And that is uh, the exact <laughs> reason reasonable. That, uh, I was uh, focused on the idea of like, uh, you know, reframe it and look at the people who are protesting because I find that to be, um, even when they are voices in the dark, and unfortunately often they are, it's important for us to remember that there are, there are people pushing back um, yeah. at the time, right? That so, it yeah. also, I think, is, I think it's important for historians to do that too because it's very easy for people with sort of a surface level understanding of historical wrongs to say, well, you know, it was a long time ago. They didn't right. know any better. And right. so saying, well, actually, there were people at the time who were saying that this is bad and exactly the same arguments we would make now is, I think, an important sort of thing to keep in mind. Like active recovery, right? Yeah. And so um, so the first third of the book kind of talks about like their uses and then um, ends with these uh, criticisms in Vietnam, right? The American scientist, there's a strong religious um, criticism of the use of the um, chemicals that uh, uh, was, you know, uh, kind of fun to uh, rec- uh, uncover. Uh, and then um, there are some international scientists, both the Tribune, but like individual scientists making criticisms. And then the middle section of the book looks at these three women in the West, right? Because the uh, Western states are where we're really going to see the use of the herbicides both to uh, create uh, more profitable forests, forests right? Like in uh, remove uh, weeds along road access, right? So they're going to give uh, timber men access to valuable uh, timber. It's going to be used uh, to remove weeds from like grazing lands, although it's problematic because uh, cattle will eat uh, plants that have been sprayed with the phenoxy herbicides and it's not good for them. So uh, sure. it really isn't quite as benign as um, you know they were telling saying. Um, and then it's also going to be used for uh, to increase water supplies, right? So the whole idea is that you're going to get rid of like the, all these noxious weeds um, and all the water that they've been uh, taking up will then be available. Uh, for human beings primarily. So like the first woman, um, and she's honoring, like she's a real character. She's somebody I think of that would have possibly been involved in like the sagebrush rebellion. So she is by no means a progressive uh, tree hugger with quotation marks around it, um, is uh, named Billy Shoecraft, Shoecraft, right? So she's um, in Globe, Arizona, and she gets involved because she is literally sprayed with the herbicides, right? So there's a book she writes called Sue the Bastards, Right. Because her argument is <laughs> Rachel Carson was this great woman, but she didn't go far enough. And um, so she describes uh, hearing, uh, you know, helicopter or plane walking out of her bedroom and in a pink chiffon nightgown and being sprayed, doused with these chemicals. And she is so angry. She jumps in her truck and chases the plane down to confront the pilot. Um, and this is the beginning of her involvement um, with these uh, uh, the phenoxy herbicides that are being used in Globe, Arizona, um, at in and in the Tonto National Forest to uh, increase the water shed for uh, nearby Phoenix. Right, so this is a great example of post-war um, United States where we see a you know a real development um, in the West. Right, we have uh, people moving to California, defense jobs. Right, so there's a real um, westward migration going on. And Phoenix is going to be one of these destination points and they need more water, uh, which is always going to be a problem uh, in the Western United States, right? So sure. she confronts them. 
she is a, a transplant. She grew up in the Midwest. Uh, she has relatives there. She comes and visits. She marries a local man. Uh, she is privileged. I mean, they're you know building an incredible house that's featured in like one of the local um, newspapers. And it's, I think, at least in part, a little bit of that privilege that is part of the reason she feels so betrayed, right? So she describes having a great relationship with like local uh, forest service um, officials and employees. And she is quite angry uh, when her concerns are ignored. So she does the classic citizen thing, especially I think if you're a privileged individual, she starts to contact elected representatives um, and they're indifferent. They pretty much blow her off. And so she, along with other uh, residents who um, were sprayed, form a group and they start to push on the local level for some kind of action to be taken, right? They want um, they want the spraying operation stopped. So that puts them in this conflict with uh, local local officials, but also the local um, forest service. And um, they're they're feisty from the beginning. So they're doing these protests where they're loading the dead plants into coffins, and they're going to take them to uh, I think it's nearby uh, um, Phoenix to like confront wow. uh, you know forest officials. Um, she is. Uh, quite outspoken. She is going to be characterized by the chemical company to a, to a certain degree, quite effectively as a little bit of a crank. Uh, there's a time piece that is um, almost slanderous that, you know, really diminishes her, uh, her position. And meanwhile, the New York times is covering one of her, um, one of the other leaders of the local movement as it's interesting. I mean, he actually threatens violence and he's not treated nearly as much of a, as a crank as she is in the time profile. So it's, there's an interesting gender dynamic there. Sure. Um, but they're, they're going to uh, be so, uh, you know, vocal that they eventually attract the attention of uh, Richard McCarthy, who's a congressman from Buffalo. And he is, he writes a book about uh, Agent Orange basically. And so he, they set up a, uh, in congressional investigation, McCarthy comes, the chemical companies are sending people, the government are sending their, their various scientists, right? Because they have a vested interest in uh, defending the use of the, uh, the phenoxy herbicides. There are something like nine different uh, visits to the area, you know, uh, Forest Service, the local university, the local uh, government. I mean, it's just um, becomes an epicenter of... Uh, the beginnings of these citizen protests. I mean, it carries on from the, those protests that were directly about it, uh, the use of the herbicides in the uh, war. And this is going to be uh, the beginning of the protests about the domestic use, right? Um, from citizens and not necessarily from farmers. And uh, Shoecraft and the and company are going to launch a lawsuit against the chemical companies. And she dies before it's settled, but they, they do win uh, money. Uh, and then there's a second uh, uh, payout that most people don't know about where uh, some young men were exposed um, during that, uh, you know, water campaign, right? Like this uh, uh, spraying campaign. Um, and there were birth defects uh, in their children. And that that case never makes public headlines at all, right? So that's a great example, I think, of like uh, that they were not cranks, that there was real sure. and legitimate concern about what was going on. Um, Shoecraft um, is going to die of cancer uh, and is 
I mean, it's a, it's a sad story in a lot of ways. But what is interesting to me is she's also part of a loose network, right? So the next case study I look at is um, a woman named Ida Onoroff, right? She's originally from Chicago. She's she tells stories about uh, being in bread bread lines or bread riots <laughs> when she's five in Chicago during the 1930s. She marries, um, goes west, and um, after her divorce from her husband, she becomes uh, a she has a program on a local, a local progressive radio station, KPFK. Um, sure. Yeah. I'm from, I'm from California. So the Pacific radio some, network. It's the LA. So it's a precursor. It's Pacifica radio, right? So it's a precursor yeah. to NPR. So it's like NPR before there is an NPR basically. Uh, I, I, I will say for the, for listeners, Pacifica is still a going concern. You should go find your local Pacifica station and listen to it. Um, it's coverage is often much better than NPRs. Uh, just as a yeah, personal no, opinion. I, I think that's how <laughs> yeah. It's KPFK 90.7 FM. And so she has a biweekly um, show called um, A Report to the Consumer, which is fabulous, right? And she also produces a newsletter that I'm pretty sure she does the research for her broadcast and then writes it up. So she's the you know writer, editor, uh, publisher, and she goes to a local printer and gets it published. And so she has like a, a mailing list of approximately 3,000 is what her daughter thought it was. So she would send this, new, this a report to the consumer out uh, twice monthly. Uh, and so I tried to get the transcripts of the from the station, and I wasn't able to get. I'm not sure if they're available for her um, uh, broadcast, but um, her daughter had kept as many issues of her newsletter as possible, and I actually found them. This is a great uh, history story. So I was um, there's a military officer who is involved in the uh, use of Agent Orange during. Uh, Vietnam, right? So he's their military scientist, basically, a man named uh, Dr. Alvin Young. And he had uh, donated money. He donated all of his records, but also he donated money. And they digitized his all this massive um, amount of information he has from his time uh, working with Agent Orange, right? It's actually the Alvin L. Young Agent Orange collection at the National Agricultural Library. And I went to look at it, even though it was digitized, I made a, a physical visit and I found her newsletters in the archive undigitized. And so this is how I found her. And it was fascinating, right? So she's like from the beginning, I mean, she's criticizing DDT. She's criticizing um, a whole host of like basically environmental harms, um, kind of in the role of a um, consumer advocate, like along the lines of somebody like Ralph Nader, right? And so she has several issues where she's calling out uh, government scientists and also academic scientists, right? So she's very critical of the local uh, California system, in part because, you know, she would argue that they've been captured by chemical companies and the government. So they're no longer like public scientists, but rather producing information and support for possibly toxic chemicals, right? So she's she's pretty angry, <laughs> She's, but she channels all of this anger in a great way, right? So she starts, like, her newsletters start to detail the various episodes of protests, um, not only against the phenoxy herbicides, but also um, other chemicals that are being used, right? In California, especially LA, has a long, I don't want to say tragic, but um, really troubling history with fire, right? And so yeah. they're, they're really invested in clearing uh, weeds from lots, right? Public lots, but also, um, uh, you know, homeowners and things like that, right? So with the idea that we'll uh, remove the brush, right? 
minimize our risk of fire. And so there are like local, county, um, and state campaigns. And California is really interesting. So I start with LA, right? Because on or off is critical of that. But she also is going to criticize the use of the chemicals in the agriculture sector and also the um, by the Forest Service in the various national parks in the state. So in one sense, uh, her chapter really gets at like the different ways and kind of the ubiquitous um, presence of the chemicals um, throughout the state, right? So because there are various agencies all spraying them for different reasons. Uh, and so she is... I would say um, somewhat effective in the sense that she raises the profile and she's going to ally with other groups. And she knows um, Billy Shoecraft, right? So she's there. They actually have speaking events together. So there's this loose network of activists that's starting to form between Arizona um, and then uh, California. And Honoroff is great because she uh, republishes a lot of information. Um, so she almost becomes a little bit of a clearinghouse. And then one of the things I love about her newsletter is she actually paid an artist and she would have illustrations that she would uh, include as a part of the newsletter. And they're, well, they're scathing. I mean, sometimes they're brilliant, but they're like, uh, sometimes they're uh, bonzo crazy. So there's a, a great uh, illustration that shows a helicopter with droplets of DDT or um, 24D 245T, right, which are the two ingredients in um, Agent Orange, right, the phenoxy herbicides. Mm -hmm. And then it has Uncle Sam, and you know, it's like a uh, overalls with no shirt, like, and he just looks like a, a crazed individual flinging the drops. There are babies. I mean, it's like, it's like <laughs> a wild illustration, but I think uh, one of the ways that I think she's effective is the fact that she's prepared to, like, uh, use visuals to be scathing and to mock uh, the officials that she holds responsible. So that, yeah. you know, like, and there's another one that is the globe and it has all these different um, aerial, so like a spaceship and a helicopter all spraying on the world. So I think it really captures her concern and what she wants people to be worried about is like these constant exposures to these chemicals. Um, and then one time in the newsletter, she's talking about uh, representative from Siba um, Geigi, right? One of the chemical companies. And they had been posting notices in forest that there had been spraying, or I'm sorry, not forest, but in like agricultural fields. So they were letting farmers know, hey, we sprayed these this, this section of grazing, just be aware for your cattle. And I think I mentioned before, 2,4-D was actually um, kind of tasty to cattle. So that was a problem mm. because they would eat the um, uh, brush um, and possibly uh, contaminate the meat. And so Honoroff confronts the drug representative and he, he was like, well, why would we post, uh, you know, sprains in like national, for you know, notices of sprains in national forests? We're not cannibals, right? Like completely ignoring <laughs> that we potentially eat like what hurts cows may hurt us, but we also right. eat. You know, I mean, it was just wild. So she was really good at finding um, points to mock those in power. Like there's a great story in her obituary where she's protesting in LA. So she wears a mini skirt and she has a sandwich board over it, you know, with her protest. And they're going to try and uh, make her take that off, but they're afraid that she may not have any clothes on underneath. <laughs> and so she's able <laughs> to keep her protest placards on while she's marching outside the city council meeting. Um, and so she is like, uh, she is like, just a fascinating character. I was, I'm so 
grateful, um, not just uh, for to recover not just her story, but uh, Billy Shukraf's story, and also the third woman. Um, well, uh, bef- first, before we go yeah, to the third woman, can I ask was was um, was she also tarred with that same sort of brush of being, you know, a, hyster- a hysterical, crazed woman that you don't need to listen to, like uh, Shukraft was? A little bit, yeah. I mean, and she was. As much as I admire her, she did ally herself with some less than reputable figures, right? I mean, I think uh, this is always tricky when we talk about um, people who are protesting uh, standard narratives of safety and science. Um, like I presented on her at a history conference, and I get this question a lot, and it's always fascinating. So somebody raised their hand. And they're like, well, do you think if she had understood the science, she she would have been, it would have been better? And I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding going on in the sense that, uh, A, I think she's perfectly capable of, like, of understanding the science. I mean, she and Shukraft both like looked to product information and could point to the ways that the chemicals were not being used as recommended by the uh, chemical manufacturers, right, which happens all the time. So like they were, you know, well equipped to like point to uh, the ways that um, – the chemicals were being abused even by the uh, directions uh, given by the manufacturer. But I also think, I'm not sure there, that science literacy is what was the problem. I think it was um, who gets to decide, right? What they're really challenging is why is it okay for the, for the local government, the county government or the uh, state or national government to be spraying these chemicals that we think could be problematic? right? I mean, that we think could be causing health problems. And I was thinking about just this morning, because unfortunately, I think it resonates a little bit with our current dilemma, where we have a lot of people who are uh, deeply suspicious of big pharma, you know, Mm -hmm. suspicious um, and angry about, uh, like, um, the authority of the state to impose mask mandates or vaccine mandates on the populace. And I don't know about you, but like, there is, there's room for criticism, right? Like we don't have a particularly healthy relationship as far as I can see between uh, the population and scientific authority. Um, And unfortunately, you know, we live the consequences of that. And so she both, I mean, I think uh, Billy was on more solid ground in the sense that um, they, they had read, I mean, they had, they could point to the ways that um, the, chemicals had been sprayed inappropriately. They found uh, drums that the Forest Service had discarded, you know, um, almost illegally. But she also, uh, you know, was prepared to make claims that those chemical companies were like, oh, that's that's crazy, right? Like, there's, there's no way that's happening. And I think uh, we know better now, right? Like, I mean, one of the things that I, that I am actually, like, proud of the work is it was easy to dismiss these individuals but as science has, science has caught up to them, we know better now, right? And uh, even more so than Shoecraft, right? Because there's a the nice uh, other nice thing about looking at these three women uh, and using them as case studies is Shoecraft is like the 60s, like late 60s, maybe up until the 70s, right? On or off mm-hmm. is in the 70s into the 80s. And then Van Strom is the 80, 80s, you know, 70s into the 80s. So there's like a rough chronological progression. But by the time Onoroff is writing, we know about dioxin, right, which is a chemical contaminant produced 
primarily with the manufacture of 245T, which is one of the phenoxy herbicides. And we know that it causes problems, right? Like in enough of a quantity, there's a signature disease called chloracne. And there's, uh, especially by the uh, late 80s, abundant evidence that dioxin is a problem. Um, There's going to be a hearings in 1970 at the congressional level. I think I mentioned, you know, they send send a um, visit to Globe that's featured there. Uh, and the knowledge, or they, they uncover the fact that the chemical companies know that this dioxin contaminant is problematic as early as like well before they're selling the chemicals to the U.S. government. And they kept silent, very you know similar to what happened with um, Exxon's awareness of the uh, climate change effects of their products, right? Uh, and so I think uh, one of the roles both all of these women play are, are taking the scientific debates and making them public and kind of exposing, you know, and, and challenging those uh, narratives of safety that um, are, you know, just present throughout yeah. during the war like, and like, during the domestic use. Yeah. I mean, two, two important concepts in environmental justice literature of people challenging scientists. One is that there are technical scientific questions that scientists can know more about and can hopefully do a good job of communicating with the public and all that sort of thing. But then questions about like risk tolerance, mm-hmm. like how comfortable should we be with a chemical that we don't know fully what its effects are? Should we you know, be precautionary and not use it until we're sure that it's safe? Or should we start using it because it sounds good? And then if it's dangerous, we'll stop. And, you know, should we be looking really hard at how it affects the average person? Or should we take specific care to look at how it affects children or the elderly or other vulnerable groups? Like those questions don't have scientific answers, right? Right. Social questions, right. And I, and I would add to that. And the third one I think that's really important is how do decisions get made? Are we only right. going to rely on the experts or do the stakeholders, right? The people who are actually going to experience on the ground, the effects of like these sprains, should they have a say as well? Right. Yeah, ex- exactly. And that's, so, so that's sort of one issue that I think is relevant here. And it's not only scientific questions. It's also people are allowed to debate publicly mm-hmm. trade-offs, you know, which yeah. what makes most the most sense. Um, and then the other important issue is that to the extent that uh, people don't trust what these scientists are saying. Um, that is a problem for the untrustworthiness of industry captured scientists. Right. You know, like it, that's that's not a problem. It's often painted as a problem for activists. Like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, e- even though she saw cases of scientists uh, being dodgy or you know erring on the mm-hmm. side of what the industry wants them to, you know, still you should trust scientists. If you don't, that's that's not a problem for the activists. That's a problem that scientists need to guard against. They need to make sure that they are trustworthy rather mm-hmm. than worrying about yeah. trustable or trustability. Like, you know, like how, how much are they trusted? You need to worry about how much they deserve to be trusted. So, you know, it, it sort of shifts the focus from individual people trusting science to scientists doing what it takes to be worthy of public trust. Right. And I think Agent, the Agent Orange case perfectly illustrates that science and scientists are not a monolithic group, right? I mean, right. And that's, yeah, yeah. you know, and climate change really has brought, I think, uh, among contemporary issues is the one that really brought that to our attention. Um, and I actually have a story of one of the scientists who's providing evidence that um, activists and um, other other critics are using um, who gets attacked by, uh, like, all of a sudden Dow focuses their attention on him and they, you know, find where he had used 
grant money for a ski trip, which he may be may have been dishonest in that sense, but it didn't necessarily discredit the science that he had done. But you know, the fact that they they did a deep dive uh, and were using these personal failings to discredit his science are you know we are much more aware of and the ways that young scientists get attacked right when they produce right. results that um, contradict uh, industry scientists. And I think that's a, a really important point um, that. Um, and the next case study actually shows that. So, so on our, like, I see her as um, important because she really takes what is going on with Billy Shoecraft and, and kind of elevates it. Like Shoecraft is um, a, an important point, right? The Globe Arizona case is important for those, uh, you know, uh, congressional hearings. Uh, on or off is kind of going to like be transitional. Like she, like, I think it's interesting because all these women are going to use media to make their case, right? Like, so Shoecraft publishes her book through the Bastards. Uh, Honoroff has both a radio broadcast and also her newsletter, right? So, I mean, it wasn't just, I mean, I can't 100% uh, say this for sure because I wasn't able to get the transcripts of her broadcast. But I can't imagine that she, the research she was doing for the newsletter wasn't, the basis for many of her broadcasts as well, right? Like that just seems uh, would be kind of ridiculous. And I don't think she had, you know, 28 hour or 38 hour days uh, sure. to be able to do everything she was doing. But the third woman, and she's also in contact with both Shoecraft uh, and Honoroff is a woman named Carol Von Strom, right? Who lives in Oregon. And her story is very interesting. So she and her husband are run a bookstore in Berkeley at one point. There were um, anti-war activists. They are going to retreat to Oregon. Like, so they're a part of the back to land movement we see in the post-war period. And their thought is that they're going to buy land, grow their own food. She is a writer. Like she's doing book reviews. She's publishing pieces with um, a whole earth catalog. So I think the intent is, you know, she, she'll continue to be a writer. They're in this pretty idyllic uh, place uh, in Oregon. Um, and this idea that, you know, it's a very, it's kind of what happens to a lot of the 1960s uh, new left individuals, right? Like, it, like people think it sputters out, but a lot of them go to places like Northern California or Oregon um, and are trying to like live a different kind of life, right? So what happens there is her children in 1995 are, you know, playing in a creek and they're sprayed with uh, the um, Agent Orange herbicides. Um, that are being used to clear the uh, roadways, right? So um, in Oregon, you've got all these roads. You, you brush is a major problem. The road truck goes through, sprays. The kids are exposed. They go home. You know, she gets sick just from handling their clothes. Their dog is affected because they're also spraying the forest area, right? Like um, the herbicides are considered to be an essential part um, of forest practice locally. So even though they have a lot of organic farms, uh, people like uh, Van, the Van Stroms who like are retreating in part to like try and have better control over the, the environment they live in. You know, there's a serious, um, serious spraying operations going on both from the forest service, but also the tim timber companies. And so she and her husband go and do research. So this is a great example. They know the science, right? Like they are educated individuals. They go to local university, which is um, Oregon State. Um, and mm -hmm. then they're actually uh, relatively close to Eugene, so they can go to the University of Oregon. So they go and do their research and they start to organize 
uh, the local people um, in what is Five Rivers, Oregon. Um, one important thing that has happened is chemical regulation has shifted from the Department of Agriculture to the newly created Environmental Protection Agency, right? And this is going to be key because they are going to use one of the regulations, which is that uh, you have to have an environmental impact statement. Um, and they are going to challenge the fact that these chemicals are safe and, you know, contest the idea that the environmental impact statement has been correct. So they go to court. Um, they're a great example of like activists who are harassed. Um, they're being filmed by, um, they are pretty sure Dow. We have uh, competing scientific experts, right? So Dow brings in their, their group. There's um, some local academics from uh, Oregon state who are like, you know, claiming that, oh, no, these chemicals are safe. There's uh, one individual, Dr. Michael Newton, who dates back to the Vietnam War. He was part of a, a team that went to assess uh, damage, you know, in South Vietnam, uh, potentially being done by the chemicals. And so there's a, it's a great example of like these contesting camps of scientists. Um, and Van Strum herself calls, you know, says uh, for one of their witnesses, he, he did his job. He just gave the facts you know, and it was clear what the problem was. And I think that's a great example of like, he was also their scientist, right? So uh, it was easy to say he was factual and not, and make claims that the other scientists weren't. And so this right. gets into that, you know, the, the science debates, right? Yeah. Um, and they, they win. So the, the judge says, nope, you have to redo your environmental impact statement. And they are able to delay it long enough so that um, they eventually stop the spraying program, at least the forest service does. Um, and another key thing that happens is they make visible the problem of the spraying of the herbicides. And so there's a group of women who initially, I mean, it's interesting. They they would say, oh, well, they were hippies. We weren't going to listen to them. But there are women um, from Alsea, Oregon, right? So, so it's just a few miles west of Five Rivers, right? So they're in the same region um, as Van Strom and the families that are going to bring the lawsuit. Um they, Bonnie, led by Bonnie Hill um, and eight other women, they're going to start to plot miscarriages, right? Hill's a local teacher, so she knows that she's had several miscarriages. She knows of her local students, right, who have grown up, right, her former students that have had miscarriages. And they do what we would call popular epidemiology. So Hill starts to chart the miscarriages, and there's a correlation to the high, the peak of this, like, spraying that's happening locally, right? And she sends this off to the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, where a Friends of Earth uh, activist, uh, Eric Jansen, finds it. And it's, it's like the perfect letter at the perfect time, right? The, um, because the registration for 245T is up for review, right? So it kind of ignites a firestorm because this is going to be uh, one of the first visible uh, instances of uh, harm, human harm, and especially reproductive harm, right? So I think, you know, when you mentioned earlier about uh, environmental, uh, you know, some of the risks, reproductive harm is one of the ones that gets almost immediate traction in a way that other individuals affected don't, right? Yeah. So this is, I would suggest once again, you know, uh, heterosexuality is a fundamental uh, right of citizenship. And so there's a, a long debate um, that scientists I mentioned, uh, James Allen is going to be involved and there are going to be attempts to discredit him. 
uh, not just by Dow, but I think unfortunately by um, the government as well. And it, so it goes to, you know, there's, there's going to be a second study because they're trying to like discredit it. At one point um, there's a great um, uh, chemical or business history of Dow where they're trying to say, Oh, these people, they don't really, they're not really being, you know, harmed by the exposure to these chemicals, but they're trying to preserve their marijuana crops, right? Because this is a part of the country where uh, it's become very profitable and uh, they're using public lands to like grow marijuana and harvest it. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a way to discredit them as uh, the radical, you know, radical hippies kind of thing. And so, but, but they're effective in, in making it visible on a national level, right? So where Von Strom and her, the group that she and her husband are leading are effective in Oregon. Um, and I would say eventually nationally, because she's also going to write a book called um, A Bitter Fog, right? So she raises this idea of um, human rights and also um, the idea of like, who gets to decide, like, should there be informed consent for these kind of cases, right? So she's, she's very thoughtfully engaged in like both what happened to them, but like, what should we be doing afterwards? Right. Um, this case in ALSI, and it's very much, at least in part, because it's about reproductive harm, starts to gain traction in ways that some of the other activists, I mean, I would just say it's a culmination, right? Like, I mean, this is really common in activist movements where it's, it's like loss, loss, you know, small victory, small victory, loss, small victory. But then there's like a, a turning point, right? This is going to be the turning point. So it's covered by 2020. They start to challenge some of the uh, official narratives of safety. Um, and I think, you know, we're now eight years beyond eight, no more than that, 10 years, almost 15 years beyond Silent Spring, right? Mm -hmm. And so the consciousness in the population as a whole has started to uh, change as well, right? Be transformed. And there's this, you know, DDT has been exposed as a very dangerous chemical. There's a much greater awareness of the potential toxicities, unseen toxicities, um, or, you know, unseen poisons, basically, right? And so uh, the end result of uh, Van Strom and also the um, Alce women and the, you know, epidemiological study they did is going to be the eventual uh, banning of 2,4-T. Or two, two, four, five T, and it's going to be that dioxin contaminant that's really going to, you know, I mean, immediately, chemical companies are like, oh, the phenoxy herbicides are okay. It's the it's the contaminant that's the problem, mm. and this is a really common defense um, that I think is worth thinking about as part of their. I mean, they, it's almost like two, four, five T is a human being. They create a defense team. The timber industry, the agricultural industry, the chemical manufacturers are all like banded together with um, covert and sometimes not so covert help from government officials, like in the Department of Agriculture. And they're all like producing massive amounts of like, you know, like uh, defenses, like in scientific journals. They're trying to get it in public, the public press, you know, like all the benefits that these chemicals, uh, you know, uh, produce. And then one of the, and this is, becomes a really common defense by the chemical industry. It's like, oh, well, dioxins are already present in the, in the natural environment. You know, we don't know how they got exposure, right? They literally at one point are saying, uh, well, dioxin is caused by fire. So, you know, if there's a forest fire, that's going to cause dioxins in the forest. And so it could be that dioxin that they're exposed to. It might not be our, you know, herbicides at all. So, I mean, it's, 
that way that um, they seek to naturalize the toxicities, um, right. to like the, let them off the hook, right? Um, and it, that to me was just fascinating. I mean, I was really lucky to be able to go to both. Um, the Dow records are available at what used to be called the Chemical Heritage Foundation, but also um, I went to uh, Forest History. Um, and so a lot of the chemical or a lot of the manufacturing, right, the uh, chemical manufacturing uh, records are available in both of those uh, places. And it was really interesting to get it from the flip side. And unlike the activists, these are, uh, you know, corporations and uh, industry uh, groups, they have a lot of money, right? So they are able to get like um, transcripts of various like uh, documentaries, but it starts to, you can see the way the tide has uh, turned. There are documentaries like looking at like chemical exposure and toxicity, right? And so there's this, there's a real uh, shift in uh, popular understandings and um, about and, and concern about what's happening. And so, I mean, that's not a small achievement, especially given the fact that it's all primarily from uh, ground grassroots activism that yeah. 245T is banned. The companies are successful in preserving 24D, right, which is still used today. Um, and there has been subsequent activism challenging it, right, as an endocrine, endocrine um, disruptor and why that is problematic. But we, it's uh, such, still considered such a valuable component of, uh, you know, agricultural uh, production that is still used. When you focus on these three women, was that a conscious choice on your part to find sort of, you know, less represented sort of subaltern kind of voices? Or were these protests and resistances to these chemicals led by women uh, throughout this period? And, if, and either way, what, why do you think that is? Oh, that's a good question. So one of the challenges I had was when I decided, when I started to do the research and realized that this was the protest against the chemicals was much broader than just the veterans was how does it all hang together? And so I had the scientist, which had kind of been covered, right? There had been, there had been somebody who had looked at scientific protests against Agent Orange, especially the um, uh, U.S. scientist. But, you know, I like found these, because uh, initially I thought it was just going to be about protesting the war, the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And then it became this much richer story. It is true historically, um, and this is absolutely true in Love Canal, but it's true of like these, um, the anti-toxics movement in general. They're far more often led by women than they are men. I think at least in part because health is often the duty, right? Like if we, if we talk about the division of work um, in a marriage or a partnership, women often are the um, partner charged with like the health of the family, right? So they're the ones who are in charge of like, you know, dental visits and doctor visits. And this falls in that in that wheelhouse. Um, often, men like the example of Love Canal is a great is a great one. They worked in the chemical industry, so they had to kind of keep a distance so they wouldn't lose their jobs. So it was, you know, much safer uh, for their economic security for the wife to be the protester than the husband. Mm. And then. One of the things I talk about is I think this is a much bigger story, but what one of the tragedy, tragedies is it's dispersed, right? Like we have all these different hotspots across the country. So it's hard for them to link up. It's led by women. And then uh, when Rachel Carson dies, right, it's 1963. 
it deprived this movement of a visible and intuitive um, and a, a well-loved and well-trusted um, individual, right, who really was considered to be a public scientist um, in the best sense. And I, I do wonder sometimes, like, what would have been different if she had lived and been able, like, been there as, like, this figurehead to coalesce the movement. And all three of these activists I look at are well aware of her and her importance and they, they revere her, right? I mean, um, you know, Shoecraft is like, I'm writing this book because Carson didn't go far enough. You know what I mean? On or off is like all about like kind of like investigating and exposing the abuses of uh, chemicals. In fact, she, she wins a reporting award, not for her work on the um, uh, phenoxy herbicides, but rather another uh, agricultural chemical, Monitor 4 that is being sprayed on lettuce and they find uh, contaminated lettuce across the country. Um, and she's tipped off. I mean, she does a whole investigative report on it. Um, and then Dan Strom is actually, you know, Rachel Carson had it right. And we should have like some kind of informed consent when, when people are going to be exposed to these chemicals. So it's really interesting to me how profoundly they're affected by her and what would have happened if she had lived for some kind of national antitoxics movement. Right. I mean, yeah. You know, um, instead, what we see is it becomes nimbyism, right? So one of the um, most unfortunate uh, ways that chemical companies are effective and, and actually local governments is it becomes, you know, oh, you don't care about uh, that. That's just not in my backyard, right? So you're worried about other things. You're selfish. This is for the good of the city. That You know, it, like there's a way that if we make it, you're a nimby. Uh, well, it's not really a legitimate complaint. It's just you not wanting to be. Uh, inconvenienced right right and so uh i felt really lucky that i could like when i realized that there was a loose network and that these women were protesting the use of the chemicals for different reasons that was really helpful too like that's one of the things where i think this is makes this an environmental history right so shukraf is protesting the use of the chemicals in the west especially as part of water projects right to increase water supplies and it's not necessarily that effective even um Honoroff is protesting the use in California, both for fire suppression, uh, you know, uh, national forest management, um, and agricultural, in the agricultural setting. And then you have Von Strom, who is taking on the industry, right? She and her, the group in Five Rivers are taking on the uh, timber industry, which in Oregon is like, you know, considered to be like one of the primary employers, right? I mean, that's a major economic engine in the state. And so right, that's yeah. not a small thing that they take on. Um, you know, that, that industry um, and also allied. I mean, that was one of the great things about being able to use some of the um, industry sources was to get their perspective and how effective they were in, I mean, they set up a task force that had, you know, timber, uh, chemical company, agriculture uh, representatives, and they were coordinating their uh, defense. But I would also say they are very much the, uh, a good defense is uh, um, a good offense, right? So they're like um, quick to conduct public campaigns. They have the money to be able to do it. They're going to be involved in attacking scientists. I mean, so to me, this, this story shows a lot of what we've seen and know happened with climate change, right? So, so we shouldn't be surprised like this has a, that all those actions taken undertaken by industry and government have a lot, much longer, um, uh, unfortunate history. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot there that are, that applies to anyone now working on environmental justice issues. 
uh, in their own communities. But if you had to sort of sum up like lessons that you can take from that for people who are, you know, are in similar positions to to where those women were decades ago, what what lessons do you think you can draw from that? Mm. One thing that I was impressed by is that they they formed a network. And I think that was really important, right? So it, it expanded the problem from just Globe or just LA or just Five Rivers, Oregon, right? Like, so they were in contact. Um, and like I, that, it, I thought it was interesting and, and important that um, Billy Shoecraft and Ida Onoroff were appearing together to um, call out, you know, when, like the local forest service. So I think that, um, networking is really important. And I think that was um, um, true uh, when I studied Love Canal as well. Um, it's one way to share resources um, and share information and also think yeah. share success, successful tactics, right? I mean, so I think that's a really um, important uh, element. I think allyships with other justice movements, right? So like, like, so if you can link up with like local health activists, and I think um, here in the Valley, we have a great example of that where you know, the protests against the LNG, the liquefied national, uh, nat, uh, natural gas um, ports and pipelines was um, helped by the physicians, right? There were the local pediatricians that spoke out and said, look, this is going to potentially increase particulate matter. We're going to see increased uh, cases of child uh, asthma, right? So I think, um, and I think, a lot of those moments. So this is a different kind of networking, right? So there's internal networking, and then I would suggest external networking. I also think that they were effective in protesting, right? So I mean, like uh, all of these individuals participated in different kinds of protests, right? Um, some more visible than others, right? So Shoecraft, like there's something kind of brilliant about putting your dead plants in coffins and then you know having a procession <laughs> that's going to go and present them to the local official. And I think we see the effectiveness of those kind of protests because there's we you know now it's much more difficult to like access public officials, right? Like there would be potentially a zone around somebody. But I think they're like I think we have to continue to be creative um, in the way that ways that we do protest. Um, and I think. And, and really, this is one of the reasons I appreciate Honor Off so much. I think you have to, um, we have to continue to ha take heart. Uh, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. It's not, you know, it's often like just heartbreaking, backbreaking, just, you know, awful. Like you're potentially, uh, potentially will be attacked. So like you having a good support network um, is important, but there, there is definitely the ways that like that, those, those years of incremental battle and change can lead to pretty dramatic turning points. And that's where I think like, even if it was like a, a very dark gonzo humor, uh, one of the things I really thought that was awesome about Honoroff is that she would have these, you know, um, visuals that were like, it's making their own arguments, but also kind of giving heart, right? Like, I mean, I think if you can keep a wicked sense of humor, uh, that's not a bad thing. And I, and I think some of the most successful activist groups are those that are prepared to call out the uh, sheer ridiculous nature of like official stances. So I think if, if movements can keep that, that heart, right. Um, and also like just a sense of like, 
humor that can sustain them. That's a really important thing because we're talking, we are talking like sometimes years, you know, which is uh, kind of like um, overwhelming. And then I think that's where uh, I guess the last thing would be make friends (laughs) with uh, good, uh, good lawyers, right? Like, like legal establishments that's prepared to do pro bono work and support you. <laughs> right. It's not a small thing. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and I think there are definitely um, far more people out there. Uh, you know, they're not going to be in the street, but they're still going to provide really important um, support. Um, and that's ultimately, um, I think where a lot of the success finally does happen. Right. I mean, there's a great, I mean, it's crazy, but there's this great book produced by or supported by Dow that's called The Coercive Utopians. It's all about this, oh, my God, they won Washington and now they're going to destroy capitalism. But they are afraid. I mean, and they there's a great example of where uh, the success of grassroots activism is the fact that these forces of capitalism, for one of a better way to call them, are prepared to emulate it. Right. So they have. Women for Timber. I mean, they they start to cr- try and create their own grassroots. I mean, we would call yeah, them astroturf now. Astroturf, right? yeah. But they try and create. I mean, this is you know long before the Tea Party. I mean, they're creating, trying to create their own grassroots, uh, you know, movements because uh, there is power uh, in those in those groups. You know what I mean? And so they're prepared to like, like their corporate media campaigns. You know, uh, slick uh, PR isn't carrying the day. So they're like, okay, we'll invest in these women for timber <laughs> uh, people. I mean, so I think that's a, that's a measure of the power of like grassroots movements is that um, corporations are prepared to emulate them. Yeah. Um, I would encourage people who are interested to go look up um, those memos that some journalists found about uh, companies that can fruits and vegetables talking about how they need to find a woman who saves yep. money for her family and her kids. Yep. Uh, the, whole, canned goods. <laughs> the whole milk debacle, right? What yeah, happened? Like, you know, and I think, uh, I think the one good thing is um, activists are like, hopefully we're going to get better about exposing some of the um, uh, propped up, you know, uh, grassroots efforts. Yeah. I mean, one good thing about social media and that's a small category <laughs> is that uh, I think it's, you know, it's good at tearing people down. And so pointing out when things are, fake and finding out who somebody really is, I think is a lot easier than it used to be. But um, so maybe just to conclude, uh, as I told you before, I have my students in my philosophy of food class bring recipes in. And then when we were teaching it remotely, we were doing it um, online, which I've I've now started a YouTube channel, in fact, where I'm sharing uh, with the students' permission, those students who give me permission, I'm putting their videos up where they talk about food that's significant to them. Um, And I'll put that in the show notes too. You guys should all check it out, all you listeners. and I think it's really a nice way for people to have sort of a focal object to talk about um, who they are. And, and something about us as humans, we feel like we know somebody when we know something about the food that they eat, and especially if we break bread with them. Um, so to do that virtually, I asked uh, my guests to also bring in some food or a recipe that uh, has some kind of significance to them. So what did you bring to share with everyone? I don't remember the exact title, uh, and sure. I can find it, but it's... Um, was in a recipe book of all things given to me uh, that is uh, written by Roger Ebert. And it turned out that he traveled so much that he had started to use an Instapot. He would travel with like a small, uh, you know, precursor to the Instapot, right? So like the a cooking pot, like a slow cooker that maybe mm-hmm. like 
you know, the smallest available so he could cook when he was on the road, right? So the example he gave is, I bring this with me with supplies so I can cook while I'm at Sundance, right? So I it kind of predates the um, uh, Airbnbs or extended stay <laughs> right, places yeah. that have kitchens, right? It's kind of brilliant. And uh, so the recipe, I'm a vegetarian, right? But it actually is uh, written for me, right? Like you're supposed to use um, both uh, sausage and chicken in it. But I realized uh, one of the nice things about being a vegetarian and not being a vegan is that there are reasonably, I actually think good, the longer I'm a vegetarian, the better, um, you know, I'll taste um, substitutes for uh, those two meat ingredients. And it was funny to me because I was typing it out and I realized how much I don't follow the recipe anymore. <laughs> like, And so part of the reason I chose it was I think it's, one of the first times I really understood cooking, if that makes any sense. Like I'm a really good shorter cook. Like I, mm-hmm. I am the best when it comes to like a grilled cheese or a patty melt or any kind of like fry cook cooking, but that's not yeah. really cooking. Right. I mean, <laughs> uh, and uh, there are other things that I cook like uh, macaroni with tomato sauce. that is not really cooking, but it's like my comfort food. But that sure. recipe was the first time like I made the effort to chop the vegetables and like cure it if the sausage was brown, you know, my soy sausage was brown before I put it in the pot. Looking at it and realizing the ways that I have changed it also made it clear to me that um, I cook it, right? Like it is an act of cooking in a way that much of my other efforts to feed myself are not necessarily. Not that I'm not happy with what I eat, but like I would serve that to other people if that makes any sense. And <laughs> right. so, you know, for sure. You know, so it was like, uh, I like the idea that I can also make a big batch of it and put it, you know, freeze it. So it's like, um, and it's harder than a lot of soup recipes, right? So it's got uh, rice. I don't put the uh, uh, white wine in, although I think that probably is a lovely uh, ingredient to add. Um, I really like the fact that it uses bok choy instead of celery. So there's a little exotic, you know, element to it. Um, And I have over the years, uh, in fact, in the act of like, looking it up, I made a batch and it, I just had that for breakfast this morning, <laughs> but Perfect. I really appreciate this idea of cooking that is designed to be healthy. Cause Ebert says that's one of the reasons he started doing it as well was, you know, for him, it was like a way to eat healthier on the road. Um, and I liked the idea that um, it was recipes people had sent in uh, and to me, it was like kind of that awesome moment when you realize that cooking is about the taste and you're allowed to change it. You know what I mean? Like you're allowed to modify as needed um, and make it better or more to your taste. Um, and I, I like that part of it. Do you know what I mean? Like for me, that was a, a big revelation. Like it happened later in life and that's okay. But um, it helped kind of change my diet in some ways that I, that I'm happy about. I mean, I think, which is the, always the joy of a good recipe, you know, you something that you make, like I had another one that I almost submitted, but it's like the only dessert I can make that's like uh, decent. (laughs) So it's like, finally I have something I can take to parties. (laughs) It's like, I have, I just have to have uh, cranberries for it. So, yeah. So I think it's, um, it's one of those, I mean, it's not super hard. There's not a lot of chopping. In fact, some of the stuff, if I liked green peppers, I could buy the the peppers chopped ahead of time. And that's a great example, I think, of like the ways you're allowed to modify it. You know, if it was a traditional uh, jambalaya, it would have green pepper in it. 
I don't like green peppers. I use uh, bell peppers, right? Like red and orange and yellow. Um, And so I think uh, I like the idea of like the nature of a recipe is the fact that, you know, you write it down, you follow it, but when it's really cooking, you're allowed to modify it and make it better and more to your taste. Yeah. I think that's sort of, um, you know, the viral spread of recipes. The first time you get it, you follow it exactly. And you're learning how to cook by sort of following a bunch of rules, but eventually you internalize those rules and you don't really think about them anymore and you make them your own kind of process. And then, you know, eventually you end up being that nice old person that, you know, can't explain how they make anything to anyone else. (laughs) You know, because like then you've completely forgotten the rules, but you just make amazing food. And you're like, I don't know, I just put in a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, you know, your grandkids are frustrated. You know, I used to be really frustrated. Like there was, like I'd asked me for, like there was a great dip a friend made that was cream cheese, curry, and uh, apricot preserves. And I was like, oh, this is great. How do you make it? And it was exactly that. Like, oh, I just do. And then I make it and it doesn't taste like it. And it makes me so sad. (laughs) Right. I needed the actual ingredients to like then make my modifications kind of thing. And that's happened a lot, right? And I'm a very despite the fact that I have an undergrad degree in pharmacy and, you know, the whole idea that you mix medicines is part of that. Like I took uh, pharmacology labs and everything. I am an atrocious baker, partly because I, I'm distracted. I never, I don't mm-hmm. think of myself as that absent-minded, you know, professor, but I'll be doing the baking recipe and I'll put, do something in the wrong order or I forget a really key ingredient. Um, like my cookies should never be eaten by any other human beings, right? Like <laughs> they're bad. And so that I think was the other nice thing about like realizing there was a difference between baking and cooking um, and that I could be a good cook in ways I had never envisioned that as a part of like uh, my uh, time in the kitchen, if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. And for baking, everyone in my family has learned that if they want to eat the food that I bake, if they want it to be edible, they need to not talk to me while at certain key <laughs> stages. Because I'll talk back, but then it's like, oh, right. No, I didn't put any salt in this. So it's terrible. Right. Now. No. You know, then it's, and in baking, that matters, right? Like, I mean, it's just right. like, oh, uh, the the order I'm supposed to add these things like makes a difference. Oops. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Amy, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my work. I, it, it was, uh, it kind of made all that effort worth, worth it. I'm <laughs> glad, glad I could redeem uh, 15 years of effort. I'll, uh, yeah. I'll also link to the book in the show notes and everyone should check it out. I appreciate that. That was my conversation with Amy Hay. Links are in the show notes, including a link to her new book, The Defoliation of America, Agent Orange Chemicals, Citizens, and Protests, which, as you heard, has really interesting resources, information, and inspiration about environmental justice and food justice. Check it out. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 